Let's have a great show today. We have a lot of very important things to talk about. Max Miller in, I don't know, seven minutes? Yeah, we don't normally start the show in monologue time with guests, but we get them when we can get them. Max Miller is a congressman in Ohio 7. He's got a new opponent, apparently. And by new, I should say old, as in very old, both in terms of years and in terms of number of different offices sought and time spent in politics. He just can't stay away. Dennis Kucinich is back, apparently tanned, rested, and ready, and he's coming for Max Miller. At least that's the plan. We're going to talk to Max about uh, his uh, upcoming town hall meeting, his first year in uh, office, his uh, uh, plans for year number two, and, of course, that re-election campaign. At 9.35, we get Jim Jordan. And we get Jim Jordan at a very important time because Jim Jordan yesterday and the weaponization subcommittee uh, on uh, government, government weaponization, I guess I should say it's the subcommittee on government weaponization within the judiciary, uh, revealed some very important things, including and especially the Biden administration has been using search terms that are consistent with conservative Americans, things like MAGA or MAGA, Trump, Bible, and shopping at certain places like Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. If you have made purchases at places like that, if your purchases have included words and names like MAGA and Trump, in other words, if you're online and you're buying gear related to those things, the Biden administration tasked the financial institutions with turning over the evidence of those transactions to them so that they could then follow you in their search for violent extremist indicators. What? If you fish and you go to a fishing shop like Bass Pro or Cabela's or someplace, and I know there are many, many other things there, but that's just one example, or if you hunt or whatever the case might be, um, they can indeed turn that information, the FBI coordinating and collaborating with... uh, Financial institutions, when they see those particular purchases, that might make you more conservative if you're a person who likes to do those things, and that might make you a threat, a violent extremist. This is incredible. And so Congressman Jordan and the um, uh, Judiciary Committee and the Weaponization Subcommittee have sent out letters asking for some very important information. Um, including letters to the financial uh, uh, individuals themselves, the financial institutions that have been collaborating and coordinating with the Biden administration. Yesterday, letters were sent from the Committee on the Judiciary and the Select Subcommittee, as they say, on the weaponization of government. They sent letters to these organizations demanding information after they learned about the documents indicating that following January 6th, what they call, they being the radical left, an insurrection, which was nothing of the sort, that FinCEN distributed materials to financial institutions that, among other things, outlined the typologies of various persons of interest and provide financial institutions with suggested search terms and merchant category codes for identifying transactions on behalf of federal law enforcement, that's the FBI. These materials included a document recommending the use of terms like Trump and MAGA to search Zelle payment messages, as well as prior FinCEN analysis of lone actor slash homegrown violent extremism indicators. According to this analysis, FinCEN warned financial institutions of extremism 
indicators that included transportation charges such as bus tickets, rental cars, or plane tickets, or travel for travel to areas with no apparent purpose, and the purchase of books, including religious texts like the Bible, subscriptions to media containing what they deem to be extremist views. In other words, FinCEN urged large financial institutions to comb through the private transactions of their customers for suspicious charges on the basis of protected political or religious expression. This is enormous. I mean, we are talking about an enormous issue here. And this just literally all came down yesterday. Jim Jordan was on Laura Ingram and then I think on Hannity, too, and was talking about all of it. But this is just such an extraordinary invasion into the private uh, lives. It's a violation of Fourth Amendment rights, uh, but of people simply for buying things or using terms in their memos when they buy things online having to do with conservative causes or religious interests like the Bible. It is astounding. We're going to talk to Jordan about that at 935. Since it is the Thursday, we'll talk with Dr. Everett Piper at 1010, and we have a little bit more coming up for you as CVS, the largest drugstore chain in America, exposed as their documents have been leaked, or several of their documents have been leaked, indicating uh, their hiring priorities based on race and gender, a complete violation of the law and the Civil Rights uh, uh, Act, uh, also discriminating against white suppliers and vendors. So CVS is in trouble. We're going to talk to Will Hild about that at 1110. So those are the guests. And I'm told our first guest is now in the green room. It's radio. We don't actually have a green room. He's sitting wherever he wants to sit. But that's what we're going to call it as we welcome Congressman Max Miller back to our program for uh, a preview of year number two in his first term on the Hill. Uh, Congressman Miller, good to have you back on the program. How are you, sir? Hey, Bob. I'm doing really well, and thank you for having me on. And just really quick, and I know we're going to talk about other things, but uh, DEI uh, it should be eradicated. And giving people jobs based off skin color and gender as opposed to merit is exactly why this country is in such the hole that we're currently in right now with the Biden administration. Uh, but I'll table that. But I, sorry, I was listening to it, and you're absolutely right. You don't have to table it, because I, I'm interested in people who are in positions of power, our representation on, on Capitol Hill like you, and to whether or not you guys are paying attention to this kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure you saw about the FAA over the course of the last few days, the FAA's uh, plan to hire as many people with serious physical and mental uh, disabilities or challenges for uh, extraordinarily important positions, including things like people who are... Uh, hearing challenged, vision challenged, and all kinds of other things, not to mention the uh, diversity of skin color and of sexual orientation and all of the other things that they are all prioritizing. We're talking about the Federal Aviation uh, Administration <laughs> prioritizing those things over uh, um, passenger safety. Well, I got to tell you, as somebody who takes two to four, two to four flights a week uh, back and forth to Washington, D.C., and to see my child, I, I got to tell you, I don't care if you're orange, purple, pink, white, uh, you, you know, fuchsia. I don't care. I want to make sure that that person who is in the cockpit of that plane can fly it and land it safely. So not only myself, but every single other American or person who is traveling on those flights can make it home. And, yes, Congress is paying attention about this. We have strict uh, DEI provisions. And even when it comes to ESG and all these woke uh, companies that our government is investing money into, and I just want to remind everybody that several months ago, Congress voted bipartisanly out of the Republican-led House and out of a Democratically-led Senate to get rid of ESG and things like this. 
and President Biden vetoed it. So once again, there are some things that we've actually agreed on within Congress, but it's up to you know the progressive left and President Biden to once again veto something like that that literally can continue to put Americans' lives at risk, whether it's through ESG uh, in their pensions that are going to be affected later on or whether it's by DEI hiring. But we all should have known this the first day, you know, Biden ran as a candidate and he said, I'm going to pick a black woman as my vice president. And that's fine. And, and he did. He picked Kamala Harris. But I would have rather him said as a leader for this country, I'm going to pick the very best person who can execute the capacity of this job and make sure that we can run this country like a business and to keep every American safe. And as you can see, when you give someone a job based off skin color or gender, this is what ends up happening. We need to continue to reward people based off merit and hard work. And that's why I think socialism is continuing to creep in this country. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. One quick follow-up on that. It wasn't just Kamala Harris either. He pledged on his way in, did Joe Biden, to have the most diverse cabinet and administration in American presidential history. He hired everybody up and down the line based on their uh, diversity and their inclusion and so on and so forth, rather than their merit, rather than having the best person running this department, that department, and so forth. It was all about diversity, and we have seen that come back to bite us again and again and again. And, of course, once he's been in an office, and he got a chance to name a Supreme Court uh, nominee. He did the same thing. He said, "I'm going to sh- uh, choose a, a woman of color," which narrowed his uh, his choices down. You know, from 100 percent of the most qualified um, uh, 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 judges and justices, or potential justices, down to a very very small percentage that happened to meet both of those qualifications: black and or person of color and uh, and female. So all of those things are, I think, are just devastating. And I agree with you. DEI needs to go, but it has to start at the top. So. No, a thousand percent. And make no mistake, we are working on it and we are trying to eradicate it uh, from pretty much everything when it comes to the public sector to the private sector. And there's people like Bill Ackman, who are big Democrats out there now railing against liberal universities who implemented DEI within his companies. And now he is stripping it out as a staunch Democrat, saying that these are dangerous ideologies that will only lead to destruction. So I believe the American people are waking up and some, you know, pragmatic people who, who are Democrats are seeing that this can really cripple our country. And the last thing I'll, uh, you know, we can touch on this is, you know, can the Supreme Court, Kentanji uh, Brown, I mean, yes, you know, very well educated, whatever. She doesn't even know what a woman is. And that is a woman who sits on the bench of, on the Supreme Court. I think everyone in this entire country and in this entire world knows what a woman is. And I think that it's still incredibly upsetting that we have somebody who sits on the bench who you know truly believes in science yet will disregard it just like every other Democrat when it doesn't fit their narrative. Yeah, very well said. We're talking to Congressman Max Miller, who just began at the beginning of the month, of course, year number two of his first term in Congress. So we're kind of doing a little bit of a retrospective about your first year and your plans for year number two, or what's your top priorities. But give me a give me just a summary of uh, of what your first year has been like: highs, lows. Is it what you expected it would be? Is it harder? Is it easier? What are your thoughts? This Congress has had its challenges, and I know that you know that, and anyone who has watched this Congress, it's been incredibly messy. Um, One of the first things, though, that I did when I got into this Congress, and it was the first tangible piece of legislation passed, and I'm very proud of it, is that we booted Ilan Omar off the House Foreign Affairs Committee. That was the first tangible piece of legislation that was passed this Congress, and we got that put through to make sure that she can't be an ambassador for our country, traveling all over the world, expressing her version of hate. And I'm proud to say that that was the first thing that we got done. 
But what I want to talk about more so than that is the impact that we've made on our community. Uh, you know, the district offices that we have, I feel as if a lot of people, you know, really don't know, and the media doesn't uh, touch on it because, you know, I believe we've been doing good work for the people of the 7th. And just really quick, Bob, we've responded to over 35,000 constituent messages, whether they're emails, phone calls, or other input. We have now resolved over 600 federal agency cases for constituents, which help them get, and this is my favorite part, Three and a half million dollars back they were due from federal agencies, including the IRS. I've now hosted uh, 12 town halls up and down the district, whether they've been virtual with yourself, which I had a lot of fun doing. And I'm proud to say I, you know, promises made, promises kept. I donated a quarter of my salary, $43,500, to the Medina Technical Educational Career Center because I am very passionate about getting people back into the trades as we are 2% down across the entire country and 2,000 carpenters short to build the new Intel project down in Columbus. And this is something that we need to continue to push to our children and educational system that you can be a millionaire right now as a steel worker making $120,000 a year with a full pension and be a millionaire in your 40s. Or you can go get an underwater basket weaving degree at a fancy liberal university and get completely indoctrinated and do nothing for this country. Uh, advanced degrees are necessary but we need more of an emphasis on American manufacturing and continuing to look at things like how USW sold out uh, to Nippon Steel, which is a foreign manufacturer. They may be our ally in Japan, but make no mistake, that should be blocked by President Biden and every single legislator to make sure that that stays within the United States of America and possibly Cleveland, Ohio, uh, which would be even more impactful to where we are in Northeast. But those are some of the things that we've been able to do. Uh, proud to say that $17 million is coming back to our district when it comes to police and fire and critical infrastructure. Right now, we were able to procure nine new police cars for the city of Brooklyn, a new joint operating base uh, out in Medina uh, for the sheriff's office, and many more things when it comes to water retention basins within Parma, Olmstead Falls, and several other major cities within our district, including North Olmstead. And I feel as if, you know, the media doesn't report it because that's the good work that we really do every single day for our constituents. And and I'm proud and I'm honored to say that. We're talking to Congressman Max Miller, looking uh, back at year number one, look ahead to year number two. By the way, you're, uh, you had a number of those town halls, as you pointed out. You've got another one scheduled coming up, uh, what, next week? I do. I have it at Saturday. It's January 27th at 10 a.m. It's at the Cuyahoga Public Library. It's the Parma Snow Branch. Uh, the address is 2121 Snow Road, Parma, Ohio. And I got to tell you, you know, I don't know how many other legislators, Bob, go out there and do town halls uh, at the rate that we do them, but I believe it's important that I go out there as much as I possibly can to speak with our constituents because I should have to answer for every single vote that I take in Congress, and I will never back down from trying to explain anything to our constituents. And I believe uh, that we have been incredibly accessible and will continue to be with our constituency to build that trust and relationship that we need back. Um, Congressman, um, I want to just talk about the second year in terms of priorities, you know, as a legislator, but also as, you know, and I think this is just one of the biggest challenges, obviously, of working in Congress. You have to run for reelection. You're up every two years. <clears throat> so your first year is spent doing work. Your second year is kind of splitting the work 
from campaigning. Now, I don't know if you're facing any primary challengers, but I do know that Dennis Kucinich has uh, apparently been tanned and rested and gotten ready and is wanting another uh, run at Congress, and he's running against you or he's running for your current seat. So tell me how you approach the year um, where you have to campaign, you have to get reelected, but you also have to get things done. Yeah, you know, Bob, I approach this year no differently than I've approached the last year. My focus is continuing to work for the people of the 7th, regardless of political affiliation. But yes, I am a proud conservative, and so I do lean that way and vote that way. But I believe we've been doing a great job on that. And when it comes to campaigning, we're going to campaign the same way, just as hard as we did. But the first priority to me is our constituents. And that should be the only priority, is to make sure that they are taken care of. Look, campaign season's campaign season. People get in races. They do it for a number of different reasons, and I think that's great. That's how democracy works. But what I can tell you is my focus is still going to be here in Congress as it is today, looking at what we're going to do with this CR that just got hotlined from the Senate last night, looking at the FRA that's going to come down the pipe probably before March 8th, and then passing the Farm Bill for our farmers and ranchers that we have in Ohio 7. That's where every legislator's priority should be for their district, And if more people put themselves, uh, excuse me, put the country before themselves, then we would end up with a better result. So I'm not going to be that guy who's going to cut the board out of here and continue to go campaign back home. No, I am home all the time, Thursday to Monday or or Friday to Tuesday. My focus is on all of you, and that's where it will continue to be uh, even after the election. And then when we return next term, we're going to be focused on the same priorities with President Trump in office and continuing to do more for the American people with great policies that will turn this country around very shortly. We're talking to Max Miller. Last question, because we're short on time here. Um, uh, The budget. Um, A lot of people are very frustrated with it, very upset about it. I am among them. Excuse me. What is it, about $1.66 trillion in spending in 2024? Joe Biden is happy. Uh, Chuck Schumer is happy. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries is happy. And that means that we're doing it wrong, as far as I'm concerned. That doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we're just supposed to always have gridlock. But in all seriousness, the spending is out of control. I just saw one highlight yesterday that shows $700,000 is being allocated to um, uh, to uh, help uh, uh, trans males who get pregnant. Uh, I mean, this is just an incredible waste of our money. So where are you as far as the budget as we approach? Well, uh, in the last ladder CR that was put on the floor, I voted no. And I, and I can explain why I voted no on the last ladder CR. And I'm you know, proud and honored to say why I'm going to vote no on this one. Because this is no more than a continuation of the Pelosi-Schumer spending levels that have continued to go on. You know, I've said it before. People felt a certain way about Speaker McCarthy. But when he put a CR on the floor... We actually got cuts with it, and we actually got something tangible in the debt ceiling deal that he accomplished. We got NEPA reforms codified that we couldn't do in the Trump administration, but by by only executive order. We just streamlined the process for oil and natural gas. We put work requirements on social programs. Right now, this CR doesn't cut it. And when it comes to the Fiscal Responsibility Act, the speaker needs to do more to get it. And we have to make sure that we close our southern border. I mean, I continuously talk about this all the time and get more than frustrated as I have to go out within our communities to see how many of people of the 7th are overdosing and dying of fentanyl overdoses. And I'm blue in the face, and I'm going to continue to be blue in the face and say that we are a border state and that we need to close our southern border to make sure that we need to protect every single American here. And the first ride-along that I took 
uh, in Parma, Ohio. The second stop that we did was for a gentleman that overdosed on heroin laced with fentanyl, and he had two nasal Narcans and two IV Narcans just to wake this gentleman up so that he could return to his young daughter who I had to see out there on his front lawn, and it was heartbreaking. We need to do better for the American people. We need more cuts. We cannot continue to spend the amount of money that we're doing, and I believe we need to continue to fight for border security, and that should be everyone's top priority. And the Democrats know they have a problem with this, but we need it now. Yep, I I think that's very well said. It's going to be a very busy year, there's no question. I appreciate you stopping by here just to kind of give us a little look-see of what what we've uh, got in front of us, uh, Congressman Congressman Miller, and I look forward to working with you in this year as well to make sure that the people are kept abreast of what you're working on. Thanks so much for the time. God bless you, Bob, and God bless everyone. Thank you. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, it is 9.33. We do continue now. We stay on Capitol Hill. We had Max Miller uh, just moments ago, and now let's welcome Congressman Jim Jordan back to our program. He is, of course, the 4th Congressional District Representative. He's the uh, chairman of the uh, uh, House Judiciary Committee, the Weaponization on Federal Government Subcommittee, and a member of the Oversight Committee. Congressman, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Bob. Good to be with you. Good to have you, too. Wow. Uh, this was eye-opening, what was released yesterday by you and by the uh, Judiciary Committee. Uh, tell us about the Biden administration flagging Americans' financial purchases and uh, and uh, yeah. with, with terms like MAGA and Trump and so forth in search of, what is it, violent extremist indicators? Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, at the suggestion, at the uh, you know urging uh, of the federal government, you had banks searching private transactions of their customers using key terms, looking for keywords, um, and it looks like they were doing all this without any warrant, without any legal process. And some of those key terms that they were looking at was, you know, Trump, MAGA. They were looking, did people purchase things at Cabela's, at Bass Pro Shop? I mean, did, did they, did they, did they, it basically is, did you buy a, a firearm? Did you, did, were you shopping at these places? They also had, did you, were they buying uh, religious material from bookstores? So, you step back and think about it. This is First Amendment, Second Amendment protected stuff, and the government's asking banks to find out the information if people are purchasing a Bible and a gun and then giving that information to the government. And it's it's frightening stuff, all part of this, what we now call financial surveillance. Um, you know, we, we, we spent a year here looking at the censorship, and now we find out that they're, they're surveilling Americans. Uh, purchases and looking at you know how they're spending their money, which is which is truly frightening. So we're going to dig into this more. We're, we just started to get this information. Um, we're going to find out more, and we've we've got letters going out, subpoenas going out to uh, uh, to the to the banks, and, and we'll get this information. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned First Amendment and Second Amendment, and of course, it all ties in with the Fourth Amendment. They can't do this, right? Why are they digging into? I mean, this is literally searching Americans for for keywords that they have decided lead to violent extremism indicators. I, that's what I'm trying yeah. to understand. Yeah, and, and it's, it's like I guess you know some of these apps when you pay, there's there's you can also have a message and you're and you're making a payment there, and they're looking for words there, and then they're just also looking were you shopping at certain stores where where they sell firearms or whatever. Um, but when you read through some of the documents we've now just, just started to get, it sounds exactly like that memorandum from the Richmond field office of the FBI when they were targeting pro-life Catholics. It reads exactly like that and uses term. It's, it's the same kind of tone. And then, of course, when, when we also started looking at this stuff, we were reminded of what happened 12, 13 years ago when it was the IRS targeting conservatives and they had this 
the BOLO list. Be on the lookout for these terms like Patriot, like 912, mm-hmm. when they're targeting conservative groups. It all has the same feel and sound as those documents, um, which again is very troubling. It's why we're, we're going to continue to do our investigative work our oversight work and get answers to this. It's extremely important that you do that. Um, Congressman, uh, the House has uh, got a couple of other things to get into here. The House has passed a resolution kind of condemning and rebuking the president for this uh, Biden border disaster. Fourteen Democrats joined you guys. So uh, tell me about that, and then also tell me where things stand after last week's first hearing. And we can talk about uh, Hunter Biden as well, uh, interrupting a hearing last week. But on uh, the Mayorkas impeachment. Well, it moves forward in the, in the uh, Homeland Security Committee. Uh, Chairman Green, I think, is doing a, a good a good job. It was good to see those Democrats take the vote they did yesterday, at least a handful of them. And I think you're seeing that because the problem is so severe. The, the crisis is so real. Um, you know, you look at the numbers. I, I think we said last week when I was on, uh, the Biden administration is on pace to have uh, 12 million migrants come into the country in, in his four-year uh, term. A 12, that's equivalent to our entire population of Ohio. So and we're the seventh largest state in the country. So that's how serious this is. And it's all maybe the most serious thing is it's all been done deliberately, intentionally, uh, willfully with the decisions they made right at the start of the administration to stop building the wall, to get rid of Remain in Mexico and to release people once they get to the country. And when you do that, you just incentivize everyone to come. And that's why we have people from 180 different countries who've now come into the country under Joe Biden. And so that's why I think you saw 14 Democrats decide, you know what? My constituents care about this, too. The hospitals, the schools, everything else. Um, and, and hopefully we can get something done. But I just don't know if Biden's ever going to ever going to change. You know, I'm, I'm happy about the 14 Democrats that joined all of the Republicans in this uh, resolution. But but that means there are 200 of them that are just perfectly yeah. fine yeah. with. Well, I mean, you laid it out 10 to 12 million. I think we're pacing for 12 million illegal crossings uh, during yeah. the Biden administration. Right. Yep, and exactly. And, and like, okay like I say, it. yeah, and it's, you know, and it, but remember what they said back during the Trump years. Remember, what it was, it, I think it was interesting because we had a hearing yesterday and I, I, I kind of dug into some of this a little bit. They said that, oh, we should get rid of ICE. Remember they said abolish ICE. They even said abolish the Department of Homeland Security. It was funny when, when President Trump had control of the border, Democrats said abolish the Department of Homeland Security. And then when they get in office and, and it's the Biden presidency, they, they, they say, no, 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 let's keep the Department of Homeland Security and let's create the Disinformation Governance Board as part of that department. Like, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. So it, it, those were the things they were. We even had Stacey Abrams, I think, when she gave the response to the State of the Union back in 2018, said that she was fine with non-citizens voting. So maybe that's the reason why they just want this all to happen. I don't know. But what I do know is it's not the way it's supposed to work and it's not good for the country to just have an open board. Last week, Congressman, you held the uh, contempt hearing for uh, Hunter Biden, and then, of course, I haven't talked to you since then, so he, uh, he, of course, uh, surprised everybody, showed up there with his lawyer and his fixer for a grandstanding performance, uh, and then fled like a scared little girl when, uh, when some actual strong women were questioning him. Uh, can you tell me where things are on that investigation, and is he now going to sit for the closed deposition you want? We've had good conversations with uh, with Abby Lowell. Uh, Mr. Lowell, his counsel, reached out to us uh, after both committees passed the uh, contempt resolution. And so we've, we've held up going to the floor in order to negotiate and get him in. We have Kevin Morris coming in here in a few minutes. In fact, I'm going to have to jump off here, Bob, real quick. Because okay. Kevin Morris, who was with Hunter Biden last week there, where his deposition starts at 10 o'clock. And then we have uh, Mr. Schwerin and Mr. Walker. Next week, uh, we have Mervyn Yan next week as well. And then, then we're 
where we have two others to schedule, which would be um, Jim Biden and Hunter Biden. But we All do right, believe that, that they're operating in good faith, and we're going to have Hunter Biden for a deposition here in the next several weeks. We will keep our fingers crossed for that. Obviously, those are important interviews that you've got scheduled or depositions you've got scheduled with those important people. Congressman, I'll let you loose. I know you're busy. Thanks you for bet. the time, sir. We appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Take care. Yes, sir. All right. There you go. That's Jim Jordan. A little bit of an abbreviated chat today. Uh, As you heard, he's got uh, depositions waiting to begin. Um, Questions I didn't get to that we need to talk about. The Department of Justice finally admitted yesterday that the Hunter Biden laptop, which we have been told was disinformation, and we have a letter that was signed by 50 former intelligence operatives showing that this has all of the uh, hallmarks of Russian disinformation. This laptop was made up to try to stop Joe Biden so that Putin can continue to have his puppet Donald Trump in the White House. Remember that crap? Yeah, well, we knew from the beginning, the New York Post knew from the beginning, and so many others, including uh, uh, experts within the FBI, knew from the beginning that it was real, but they had to play that game, and now four, on the, roughly four years later, the DOJ says, oh yeah, uh, yeah, we, we know the Hunter laptop is real, it has been confirmed. At the same time, Hunter Biden confirmed on his way out of that hearing last week that we, uh, uh, you know, that which he walked out of and we played for you uh, the comedy uh, of it. I mean, because it is kind of laughable because he's such a clownish human being, this crack addled whoremonger that is Hunter Biden, the pride of his uh, of his father's eye and the gleam in his father's eye. But um he admitted that, yes, he took phone calls from his father while he was conducting business meetings <clears throat> with his associates, which, of course, is a direct contradiction of what he and uh, KJP, DH, that's Corrine Jean-Pierre, diversity hire. Did you know she's black and gay? Yeah, she's black and she's gay. They want you to know that, so I want to repeat that. KJP, diversity hire, told uh, uh, everybody again and again that, uh, no, Hunter Biden has never discussed any business with his father. And Joe Biden has never been involved in any way with Hunter's private business dealings. He's a private citizen. What are you talking about? Well, now we know that was also proven to be a lie. Hunter coordinated with his father. Hunt the laptop, which showed so much corruption and criminal activity, and also gave evidence of the 10% for the big guy. All of that stuff that they said was, was, it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy by the radical right to try to uh, paint the, the clean as a, the, and pure as the driven snow Biden administration or the Biden campaign and then administration as some sort of, um, uh, you know, corrupt uh, organization. So the laptop is real. Hunter and Joe did absolutely coordinate and collaborate and communicate when it comes to uh, his uh, Ukraine deals, his uh, Chinese deals, uh, getting, of course, the the prosecutor in Ukraine fired for looking into Burisma and the whole nine yards. So uh, Joe Biden is going to have a hell of a lot to answer for when all of these interviews that Jim Jordan just talked about with us uh, when uh, when these are conducted. Because these people are material witnesses. Some of them have agreed to co- have agreed to cooperate. Some of them <clears throat> are whistleblowers. Uh, and when all of the the facts come out from these individuals, and especially when Hunter sits for a deposition, which is much more important, by the way. And I didn't understand this until I talked to Jordan and several others. 
about why it was important to have him testify behind closed doors in a deposition as opposed to one of the show hearings in which they testify and each questioner gets five minutes and it's filibustering and a waste of time oftentimes. This is a very different setup in which he has to answer questions from an attorney or or a group of attorneys, and there is no limit to the length of time that they can uh, uh, ask those questions. It's not like a five minutes for each side, back and forth, nine yards. So he's going to have a lot of things to answer for then. I'm so tempted to play Hunters in the Basement right now, because it's just every day when new information comes up that starts, you know, a little bit more rope with which to hang Hunter and Joe. And I mean that, of course, metaphorically, as they themselves have brought all of this upon themselves, all of their corruption, all of Hunter's drug use. Did you see the other news story on on Hunter? We didn't bring it up the last two days. But the FBI confirmed, forensics confirmed, that the illegal gun that that, uh, uh, Hunter Biden had obtained had traces of cocaine on it. So remember the cocaine in the White House scandal that all of a sudden just disappeared and they closed it. They closed that investigation without a finding. We just couldn't track down who would have brought cocaine into the West Wing. I had no idea. But, oh, by the way, we found cocaine on Hunter's gun or his holster or whatever the hell it was. I mean, every time I see these things, I just, I'm reminded of the, the parody song that I wrote specifically in response to a meme that had a picture of Joe and Hunter side by side, and it said, uh, you know, it quoted the line from that Harry Chapin song. Uh, and as I as I looked at him, I realized, or whatever the word, the, the actual wording is, uh, I realized my boy was just like me. Yeah, a criminal and a crook. I saw a meme with that little thing, and I just took it to the next level and wrote the song. And what the hell, I'm going to play it again. <laughs> me up just the other day you said dad i need some crack can you help me today and i had lots of cash but bills to pay he said don't worry dad i'll find another way he was smoking for i knew it and away he flew saying i'm gonna be like you dad you know i'm gonna be like you and hunters in the basement with a silver spoon the hookers and drugs were gonna be there soon when you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when I'll be good and high by then, Dad Yeah, I'll be good and high by then Picking through rugs, um, smoking anything that re- even remotely resembled crack cocaine I'm very proud of my son My son came around just the other day He said, I got me a deal where we can both get paid Can I trade on your name? I said, sure, okay Will anyone know? He said, no, no way And as he walked away, he looked kind of dim And said, I'm gonna be like him, yeah You know I'm gonna be like him He's, he's fixed it, he's worked on it And Hunter's in the basement with a silver spoon Your cranium bribes were gonna be there soon When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when I'll put aside your 10%, Dad I'll always have your 10% what are you doing? I said, Dad, I'm fine. He said, you're not fine. I know how to game the system. Come on. Come on. Well, he came from Kiev just the other day. Had a smile so big I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you. How 
was our cash supply. He nodded his head and said, Great big guy, but what I really need, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. You can take the vet, but watch the boxes, please. And hunters in the basement with a silver spoon. Classified papers all over the room. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when. I'm getting good and high again, Dad. I'm getting good and high again. He pointed out the reason why he regrets it is he didn't anticipate that that folks like Giuliani would use it to, in fact, try to embarrass his father. Yes, they are. The flat bugs. Come on. This guy is a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. I stole an election and my son moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, you owe some cash. I want my cut today. He said, calm down, Dad. You know it's on the way. But my laptop is gone and now it's on you. And now we're both really screwed, Dad. And now we're both gonna be screwed. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me He was damn near dumber than me My boy was dumb as me And there was Hunter in the basement with a silver spoon All of our crimes were coming out real soon When's it all in, son? I don't know when But we're gonna end up in the pen, Dad We're both gonna be in the pen I am absolutely certain 100 percent certain that at the end of the investigation that i will be clear of any longer god save the queen man can you dig it it just all it just all becomes so true i mean i've said it before and i'll say it again i don't know if life is imitating art or art is imitating life but they're all lining up virtually everything i wrote in that song is was either true at the time i wrote it or it has become true since then and i missed one by the way before i played that again um one more lie that has been disproven hunters you know, again, as part of his trading in and cashing in on his father's name and his father's access to the White House and so forth, back when he was a um, uh, when he was vice president, and of course now that he is president, <clears throat> the art deals. The White House has said countless numbers of times that a system had been established in which art collectors who wanted to buy Hunter Biden's little finger paintings would remain anonymous because that's what they wanted. Because they didn't want anybody to know that they were buying Hunter Biden's artwork. Well, there's a reason why they wanted to remain anonymous. Because Hunter Biden knew 70% of them. They were buying his quote-unquote art in order to have justification to give him the money that he wanted to give them access to his father. This is just coming out also yesterday. I mean, all of the, or actually this one was from Tuesday. All of these news stories are syncing up. Hunter knew 70% of the art buyers contradicting the White House narrative on the anonymous collectors. This according to a gallerist who knew all of these individuals. George Burgess, the art dealer for Biden, took part in a closed-door transcribed interview before the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees earlier this month as part of the impeachment inquiry against Biden and confirmed that, yes, Hunter knew at least 70% of these individuals. These people were giving him money specifically so that they could get access to Joe Biden. But they can't just write up a hey here's here's money for you to give us access to your dad. That that would be a little bit obvious, which of course they 
did do obvious things. Some of the shell companies were, were pretty easily uncovered once whistleblowers started talking. But they couldn't do it that way. It would be pretty obvious. So they had to turn it into, oh, let's, I'll, I'll buy something from you. What do you have to sell? Uh, well, you're not getting my car. Well, what do you have to sell that will justify me giving you $250,000 so that you can give me access to your dad? I know. I'll draw you a picture. I'll draw you a little sketch. We'll call it art, and you are buying. Because, you know, I've always been a burgeoning artist. I mean, I get some really, really fantastical ideas in my head when I'm all coked up. So when I get all coked up, I'll scribble some things down. I'll give it to you. You give me the money, and everything will be just fine. But make sure that your name stays out of it. So nobody knows. And that's why they had the uh, anonymity little uh, portal set up for them. So it's all coming down and crashing down around the family Biden, as it should be. I led the interview, and I want to follow up on this briefly. I led the interview with Jim Jordan talking about what they found regarding the um, the uh, search terms. This is extremely important, and I'll just cover this briefly before the top of the hour. We've got uh, uh, Dr. Everett Piper waiting on the other side. Of, of the top of the hour, but this is very, very important for you to know. The The Biden administration is continuing to target conservative Americans. That For a while, they were just targeting them for censorship, shutting them down online so they couldn't question things about COVID, question things about shots, couldn't question things about, uh, about um, 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 well, virtually anything, but anything challenging the government's narratives. Let's just say, say it that way. Uh, including the th- things like the laptop, but they shut us down. They shut conservatives down and targeted them that way. Now they're targeting them for investigation and have been since after January sixth, depending on what they do, and what um, uh, what they, where they shop and so forth. So just to cover this again, federal officials told banks to comb through your data, customer data, for terms like Trump and MAGA used in transactions made online, purchases made online. This according to the documents obtained yesterday by the Select Subcommittee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. The revelations were made, as Jim Jordan announced these yesterday, that he had requested an interview with Noah Bischoff, the former director of uh, the Office of Stakeholder Integration and Engagement in the Strategic Operations Division of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. That's called FinCEN for short. We now know that the federal government flagged terms like MAGA and Trump to financial institutions if Americans completed transactions using these. What was also flagged? If you bought a religious text like a Bible or shopped at a Bass Pro Shop or at Cabela's, they were flagging those to track you to see if potentially these might be indications of you being a violent extremist. Because, you know, all of those violent extremists are Bible thumpers, right? All of those violent extremists shop at Bass Pro and Cabela's. All of those violent extremists uh, donate to things or purchase things in in their uh, online purchases using Trump and MAGA in the notations. This is a violation of so many elements of the Bill of Rights, it's hard to even track them all. But they literally tied this into their prior prior FinCEN analysis of the, quote, lone actor slash homegrown violent extremist. If you do those things, you're in the crosshairs. It's really quite astounding. We're going to talk uh, a little bit more about that later, but we'll take a time out now here at the top of the hour so we can clear the decks for our friend Dr. Everett Piper, who's got a lot of good stuff for us coming up this morning as well. We're going to try to squeeze you in when we can, but we are very heavy on guests. We've got, uh, we had. Uh... You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. 
We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. You know, I hear that uh, little Reagan clip uh, at the top of every second hour each day, and um, some days it just goes by me and I get ready for the next segment, and some days it hits me a little bit more. And after reading for the second time the massive um, uh, narrative, I suppose, uh, offered by Victor Davis Hanson that Peter Kersenow keeps telling us about. Last two weeks, Kersenow has talked about this this opus that uh, that uh, Victor Davis Hanson wrote about our culture and where we are as a nation, how we got here, and, and and how this is such an extraordinary tipping point. I read it last week. I read it again yesterday because Peter and I talked about it on Tuesday. And everything you just heard in Reagan uh, Reagan's clip there, um, it's true. It's true. We're at that moment right now. We may indeed condemn uh, future generations into that darkness that Reagan warns about in all seriousness if we aren't very, very, very careful. If you have not yet read that, I put it on my Facebook. Did I put it on my just my friend page or my um, Always Right Radio page? I want to double check because I want you to read it. I'm, I, I hope I put it on both. And if you are not a personal friend, uh, you won't be able to see it. So let me double check to see if I put it on there. I did. Good. Take some time today. It'll, it's, a, it's a long, it's a lengthy read. I mean, it's not a book, but it's a, it's an essay called "A Culture in Collapse" by Victor Davis Hanson. He wrote it and it uh, ran on January eighth. Like I said, I just shared it yesterday, <clears throat> but it's there, so it's easy to find. About the second or third post down, as of this moment, at Always Right Radio on my Facebook page. I'll share it on my Twitter page at France Rants, and I'll share it on my Truth Social and everywhere else I can as well. It's, uh, it's extraordinarily important. It just hit me that that uh, Reagan clip really touches that. All right. It is um, uh, the 18th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. That makes it a Thursday, and that means it's a Dr. Everett Piper day as well. Dr. Piper is our uh, favorite commentator when it comes to these culture wars. I call him a general. He leads us. He's a former university president. He is a... Uh, a best-selling author. He is a twice-weekly columnist with the Washington Times. He is also a county commissioner in Oklahoma. Uh, Dr. Piper, good morning. Good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Bob. Thanks for having me on. It is always a pleasure to have you on. I love the word vacuous, and you really nailed it with these terms. You gave us a little bit of a, a glossary and a lesson in this week's column uh, in the Washington Times. Tell us about the vacuous words that can mean whatever the Democrats want them to mean. Well, as you know, I, I decided to play a little game, I guess, in this week's Washington column, Washington Times column. I, I took the Democrats at their words, and I decided to give you the definition of their words. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the Everett Piper interpretation of the Democrat lexicon, their glossary of terms. Okay, words like is. What's the definition of is? Well, we go back to Bill Clinton, and we learn that the definition of is is whatever you want it to mean. It depends on what the definition of is is, said Bill Clinton, when he was asked if he was guilty of sexual harassment and sexual abuse of his college intern while he was the president of the United States. Well, it depends on what the definition of is is, and that still plays out today. If you ask if Joe Biden is guilty of collusion with his corrupt son in business dealings in Ukraine and whatnot, well, I guess it depends on what the definition of is is. You have words like 
hope and change. Now, remember, these were the campaign words for Barack Obama. Hope and change. We heard about it relentlessly. We want to we want to inaugurate an era of hope and change. Well, what does hope and change mean? Well, it means whatever they want those words to mean. These are vacuous words. And when I say vacuous, I mean it. They're empty. They're, they're words that can be filled with whatever meaning the listener wants to pour into those words. It's like an empty glass. I'm going to give you this glass. It's empty. And I'm going to call it the glass of change, the glass of hope. And you can pour into that glass anything you want to pour into it, because that'll get me your vote. Because I'll agree, whatever you put in that glass, whatever you pour into it, whether it be poison or whether it be you know, something nourishing, that's what you want hope and change to mean. So again, the, the, it doesn't matter what you define the terms as meaning as long as it brings power to those that are using those terms. Angry mob. What does angry mob mean? Well, it means any group of people, apparently to the Democrats, it means any group of people that disagrees with the vacuous definitions of words such as hope and change and is. How about shrill voice? Well, I use Riley Gaines, the swimmer, as an example of someone that the left will call shrill. She's shrill in the way she's communicating because she dares to say that women's athletics should be preserved for who? Women, females. She's shrill for saying that, but anybody who uh, wants to call Riley Gaines a misogynist for saying such things, well, they're not shrill. They're actually being reasonable. Uh, disinformation. I mean, anything that the left disagrees with, any blog, any article, any op-ed, any speech, any commercial, anything that the left agrees with is, is called disinformation. How about insurrection? Well, apparently an insurrection is any, any um, protest of an election where you want regress for things that you think were done un, in an untoward fashion during the election season, you're now guilty of insurrection, even though you're not armed and it was only a handful of you that might have trespassed into federal government property. That's an insurrection. But if you've got a group of protesters that are burning and looting and pillaging during a Black Lives Matter riot, well, that's a peaceful protest. I could go on and on. You know I talk about a security threat. I talk about a bunch of other things here. The bottom line is this is Orwellian to the extreme. We're reversing the definition of words. The Democrats will say whatever they want. They'll redefine things, everything from redefining a male, a female, hope and change, the definition of is. We'll talk about security threats. We'll talk about insurrections. What got me off on this, Bob, this week was I wrote this right after January 6th, and I was so sick and tired of everybody buying the narrative, the lie that the people during January 6th were guilty of insurrection. Now, I would argue that several of them were foolish. You shouldn't have entered into the Capitol building in a manner that was not legal. That should not have happened. But was it an insurrection? Absolutely not. Nobody was armed. Nobody committed any violence. Foolish, perhaps. Trespassing, perhaps. A misdemeanor, maybe. But an insurrection that warrants several years of imprisonment? That's crazy talk. It's Orwellian to the extreme, and it follows the playbook of the left right now who will redefine everything to suit their political purposes and their quest for power. Yeah, and and the real question is, is how do they get away with changing these definitions or or manipululating them in the ways that they do? Uh, I I mean, you would think that so many of the things that you just described – 
would be obvious and would be condemned. It would be saying, no, it is not shrill to be able to make a statement like this to simply pursue truth. It is not disinformation to say that men can't get pregnant and so forth. You would think that there would be a majority that those who try to advance the kinds of um, uh, malleable definitions to these terms and, and others that you write about here would be a very, very small minority, but but yet they have become the majority. We are the very, very small minority that is speaking out against this redefinition of language and this redefinition of ideas. Well, again, I like to pick, because I think I need to, I'm obligated to, pick on my own industry, education. I do this all the time on the show. Because I get asked, how did we get here? The same question you just asked is, how in the world did we come to this point in our culture where we can't even define the definition of is? And we actually think it makes sense for President Clinton to say, well, it depends on what the definition of is is. Uh, and, and, and we redefine a woman. We redefine male. We're, we're guilty of, 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 of being totally confused as a culture where we can't even communicate accurately with anyone any longer because the words that we're using don't mean the same thing from one person to the next. How did we get here? Education. It, it, all you need to do is go back and look at what you've been teaching in your schools for the last 20, 30, 40 years. You've been teaching value neutrality. Well, what is the, what is the premise of value neutrality? The premise of that is that there is no objective definition for right and wrong. It's the deconstruction of virtue, the deconstruction of value, the deconstruction of morality. And all of this presupposes that words such as right and wrong, good and evil, just and unjust, are subjective terms relative to the culture in which you live. Therefore, there's no definition for is. Our kids have been taught this crap for generation after generation, and the chickens are coming home to roost. They bought the lie. They believe the narrative of the left, that there's really no objective definition of anything any longer, to the point where when these lunatics in Washington, D.C., and the ivory tower tell us that men can get pregnant, they actually agree with it. This is crazy talk, and it goes back to the prophet Isaiah, who said, Woe unto those who call good evil and evil good, bittersweet and sweet bitter. He predicted this. He saw it in that culture at that time, that when people lose the objective definition of words, of right and wrong, that there's nothing but woe, there's nothing but a curse that awaits them, and that curse is slavery to those in power. We are talking with and listening to uh, Dr. Everett Piper. Dr. Piper, we're going to get a time out here. On the other side, we're going to have time to do one or two things, but I think I've got four to choose from. So I'm going to let you choose between now and then, between MLK, which you wrote about, MLK, which you commented about, a different piece, higher education by way of Pepperdine University's president, since you were just talking about that, and John Dewey. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz. The answer. All right. My goodness gracious, what a busy, busy morning we have had thus far. And it's. A call in talk radio show, 216-901-0945 or 888-281-1110. We've had just back to back to back guests so far. And uh, coming up in, uh, like I said, in about uh, half an hour, top of the next hour, we are going to be talking with. Um, 
with Will Hild. Now, who is Will Hild, and why are we going to be talking with him? He's the executive director of Consumers Research, which is America's oldest consumer protection agency. Well, what are they protecting us from right now? From CVS. The largest drugstore chain in America is just swimming in discrimination against white suppliers and vendors, and they are prioritizing their own hiring uh, on race and gender. They're discriminating against people based on their race and their gender. It's, um, it's legitimately a, a scandal. And it's a big story, and it's just all coming out. And we're going to talk to him about that. Why do we continue, or why do so, not we, why do so many of these companies and corporations continue to embrace um, policies that break the law? Uh, the story was tweeted out uh, by End Wokeness, citing internal documents that have been leaked. Insiders at ECVS leaked internal documents exposing potential criminal violations of the Civil Rights Act. CVS leadership is instructed to hire and promote on the basis of race and gender. So if you happen to be already working at CVS, if you happen to be there and you're putting in your time and you're doing a good job and you're in line for maybe an assistant manager's position or a manager's position or or even higher, um, if you're white, if you're a male, God forbid if you're straight, Straight white male, you have no chance of getting a promotion. They are going to look past you and look at other people's skin color or sex or sexual orientation first. That's what this bottom line is. They have directives to discriminate against white suppliers and vendors by prioritizing diversity as well. And they even offer an exclusive program to help non-white women advance their careers. Let me say that again. A program to help. Now, do I care if non-white women advance their careers? No, I cheer for them. Good for you. Go, non-white women, advance your careers. But not at the expense of another woman who happens to be white. You each compete for opportunities to advance your career, and based on merit and hard work and, 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 and maybe experience, if that's part of the, you know, the, the equation of longevity, that's fine. No one should be advancing their career because they are a certain color, and no one should have their career stagnate because they are a particular color. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. But we've got that for you uh, coming up with Will Hold again from uh, Consumers Research. That'll be coming up at the top of the hour. Uh, this is one that's a little more local now. And I've been wanting to share this one with you since I saw this yesterday. I believe that if this bill passes in the state of Ohio's House of Representatives and then gets through the Senate and assigned into law, it will be the beginning of the end of our culture as we know it. What bill are we talking about? There is a bill that has been put forth that is sponsored in a bipartisan fashion by one Democrat and one Republican in the Ohio State House that would pay kids to go to school. Now, as you chew on that for a second, you, you may be thinking the same thing I am, but maybe not. Maybe you're thinking, what a, what's the big deal? The big deal is our entire culture is built on education. It's built on parents collaborating with public education systems, and if they can afford it, private education systems, to teach their kids how to become productive members of society. Kids who don't go to school 
and become productive members of society become what? They become drains on society. They become, they become pains on society. Kids have to go to school. Kids have to get a diploma at the very least. And again, we'll, we won't talk about the ongoing discussion as to whether or not college is worth it anymore or trade schools and whatnot, but we're just talking about plain old K-12 through education. Apparently, chronic absenteeism is so bad, not just in Ohio, but around the around the country. But we're we're obviously focusing on on, on it in Ohio. Seventy one percent drop, chronic at well or increase technically. Twenty twenty three saw rates of chronic absenteeism seventy one percent above the national average pre pandemic. So what does that mean? It means that Mike DeWine and all of the other states and the federal government's push to close schools for a period of time because of COVID, and it started out with just two weeks to flatten the curve, as we know, and we all ended up, they ended up losing the rest of their 2020 school year. Many of those closures extended into 2021. We all know the way this went. And I think what happened here and what some of this data shows, this 71% increase in chronic absenteeism, what the data shows is or show is that kids started to get used to not having to go to school. Parents started to get used to not having their kids in school. And when schools reopened again, they just kind of said, yeah, I'm not really down with that. I don't need it. I'm good. I'm happy. I can do whatever I want to do. And so the answer to this, according to um, the uh, state of Ohio, or at least a few representatives who are, who are sponsoring and pushing this, the answer is to pay them to go back to school. Now, when I say this could be the first step toward the end of our culture, what do I mean by that? I mean exactly that, that if we have to bribe kids to do something in their younger years, to stop them from becoming drains on society, if we have to bribe them to do that which is right, which is to go and learn, get smarter, uh, become productive for yourself, for your future family, for your community, and so forth, if we have to bribe them to do that, when or where will it ever end? The answer is it will never end. If you bribe kids when they're in fifth grade to go to classes, they're going to expect that money to be given to them to do everything they're supposed to do, which is right. What's next? Are we going to pay kids to follow the law? If you don't break in and steal things, if you don't commit crimes, here's a bonus for you. Is that what we're talking about? House Bill 348 is sponsored by Republican Bill Seitz, who's a Republican, I don't even like to say in name only because that makes it into the rhino you know, label, but I don't know that that's necessarily strong enough here. But Bill Seitz is a wreck. He's a train wreck as far as I'm concerned. But he's a Republican down in Cincinnati. And Daniel Isaacson, uh, a Democrat from District 24, they have teamed up here to put forth House Bill 348, and they've got a handful of sponsors. Uh, as a matter of fact, let me count them up here because I just showed this to Seth. Uh, looks like two, four, six, eight, about 15 or 16 co-sponsors. Uh, Abdullah, uh, or Ab- Abdullahi, I guess is right. Baker, Brennan, Brewer, 
Carruthers, Denson Dobas, Forum Golonski, Jarrell's Lightbody, Matthews, Miller, Robinson, Somani, Sweeney, Thomas, Upchurch, and Weinstein. All state representatives, and I think all of those but one are Democrats. I could be wrong, but I think all of those but one are Democrats. And we're going to reach out to some of them to have them on to talk about this. But they're co-sponsoring House Bill uh, 348, which establishes a pilot program to increase student attendance and graduation rates through bribes. Okay, it's not in the bill, the word bribes. The word that they use is financial incentives. But they're saying bribes. It's being suggested for kindergartners and ninth grade students for the fiscal years 2024 and 2025 just to start. Here are the incentive options spelled out in the bill. Cash transfers of $25 made biweekly during the school year for students with an attendance rate of 90% or higher. Cash transfers of $150 at the end of each quarter to participating ninth grade students and the parents or guardians of participating kindergarten students with an attendance rate of 90% or higher for that quarter. One cash transfer of $500 at the end of the school year to participating ninth grade students and the parents or guardians of participating kindergarten students with an attendance rate of 90% or higher for the school year. Schools would have to apply for the program, according to Fox 8 News, and then decide which payment option they would uh, they think would be most effective. All participating schools must be schools with chronic absenteeism. So let me pause there. What does that mean? It means that if your kid goes to a school where they take education seriously and they take attendance seriously, and if you live in a school district where other parents find it important to make sure their kids are in classes, no soup for you. No money for you. You guys are doing a good job already. We want to reward those who are doing a crap job. We want to reward those who don't find it important, talking about kids and parents, to put their uh, to make sure that these kids are in their classes at least 90% of the time. I want you to think about that. If you live in a district in which there isn't a problem of chronic absenteeism, your kid gets nothing. If you live in a district where where there are a lot of kids who don't go to school very often because their parents are just not motivated to send them, or maybe, as I said a moment ago, post-COVID, when the schools reopen, there just wasn't much of an appetite to go back for so many of them. But if you live in a district that is crap, that has, you know, that's filled with families that are not real families or that are not necessarily uh, disciplined enough to make sure the kids go to school, well, your kid, if they just show up at school, going to get paid. Anybody find anything bizarre about that? Anybody find anything insane about that? If approved, half of the kindergarten and ninth grade students at the chosen schools would be randomly selected to receive the incentives. The other half would serve as a control group. How about that? That's going to feel great. I can already see lawsuits all over this. I can already see lawsuits. Two things. Number one, my kid got the flu. My kid got the measles. My kid got whatever. My kid had to miss six or seven days without sickness. My kid would have been there over 90% of the time. Where's my money? 
Where's his money? That's number one. And number two, with the uh, control group versus the active incentive group, um, if you know that this program is going on and your school has to apply for it, so they do have to announce it, if you know this program is going on and you go to school for, uh, every day for an entire year thinking I'm getting you know $500 at the end of the year and I'm getting 125 at the end of each quarter and all of these other incentives that they've got, <clears throat> if you are going to school for all those things and then you find out you were in the control group and you did it for free, you did it just because you're supposed to go to school anyway, I guarantee you there's going to be lawsuits. So this is this is creating what? It's creating a lifetime of dependency. Pay me to do what is right. Pay me not to break laws. Pay me to exist properly. Subsidize my housing. Subsidize my food. Subsidize my medical care. And now give me money for not smoking crack. Give me money for not robbing stores. Give me money, give me money, give me money just to do the right thing. So this is what they're doing in Ohio, in the Ohio State House. Now, I will give you good news. Last night I sent this story to an Ohio State senator, and I said, what the hell is wrong with Bill Seitz? (laughs) Because he's the Republican who is co-sponsoring this thing, uh, or co-authored it, and then they've got a bunch of co-sponsors who are, I think, all Democrats except one, Carruthers, who I think is also one of the trans-dems, so... She fits in that mold, so does Sites. But I sent this uh, this whole thing to um, uh, one senator last night, and I said, what's wrong with Bill Sites?" And the response that I got was, um, I don't know, doesn't matter, he's on his way out, which is good to know. And I don't know if he's term limited or if that means he's going to lose, but uh, he's on his way out. And then I was also told by this one singular senator that I sent the story to, it's DOA in the Senate if it even gets here. Thank goodness. And I'm glad of that. As I said, very, very glad of that. But it's not the outcome that is important here. It's the intention. It's the messaging. It is the representation in Columbus that says we don't want our kids, or excuse me, um, we don't feel like our kids should have to go to school, but we will put them there if you pay them to do it. It's the, it's the idea that we have to bribe our kids to go to school and do the right things that is so, um, so astounding. So if you've got thoughts on it, we'd love to hear from you. 216-901-0945 and 888 Let's get a timeout. It's 1049. Don't forget, we're going to talk about CVS, and we're going to talk about DEI bribing. <clears throat> excuse me. Not bribing. Rather, um, discriminating against people based on their race and based on their sexual orientation and based on their, uh, their sex. I don't have a ton of time for this one, but I just want to get it in uh, before the uh, top of the hour and before we start talking about CVS and DEI and everything else that's going on right now. This is uh, this is quite astounding and, and dare I say, infuriating. You know, I, if you listen to my conversations with Pete every Tuesday, I talk. We he tries to talk about the Browns in the NFL, and I reiterate that I've sworn off the NFL and the NBA and MLB, and I've spent. Uh, the the bulk of my career, or p- close to half of it, I guess, maybe a little bit more, in sports radio. So for me to swear off that which I have dedicated my career and my life to is is pretty it's pretty astounding, to be honest with you. But I'm so over the wokeness of it all that I just can't do it. Well, this is ex- an example of it, and in this case, it's not just. Um, the league itself, but it's their business partners in in media. 
Here's what I'm talking about. When the Browns lost to C.J. Stroud, the former Ohio State quarterback, now the rookie sensation for the Houston Texans, in the playoffs last week, NBC featured a clip of C.J. Stroud after the game. But they edited the clip. They left out the first line of the clip in which he paid homage to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. C.J. Stroud, the rookie sensation, was asked by NBC Sports sideline reporter Catherine Tappan, C.J., your first playoff game and your first NFL season and a record-setting performance for you, what does this moment mean? C.J. answered, well, first and foremost, I just want to give all glory and praise to my Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said, I mean, it's been amazing being in this city as short as I've been, but I love what I've got or that I've got. I really just uh, be doing it for Houston, man, people back home. I'm blessed enough to be in the position I am and blessed enough to be playing at a high level right now. And we've just got to keep it going, end quote. But NBC didn't give you all of that. CJ, your first playoff game in your first NFL season and a record-setting performance for you. What does this moment mean? I mean, it's been amazing being in this city for as short as I've been, but the love that I've got, I've really just been doing it for Houston, man. People back home, I'm blessed enough to be in the position I am and blessed enough to be playing at a high level right now. And uh, we got to just keep it going, but I'm super blessed. Did you, did you hear it? That's what NBC aired. The full statement is available online from others who recorded it. First of all, I just want to give all glory and praise my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's... Why was that so offensive? Why would that have to be edited out when, when, when uh, NBC ran the clip? What you're hearing is audio from inside of NRG Stadium in Houston, as you can hear, kind of echoey and off in the distance, that sort of thing. You're hearing that through the stadium speakers because that's how it went live, but not how NBC played it when they came back on screen. NBC edited out the part that said... First of all, I just want to give all glory and praise my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean... I mean, first of all, kudos to C.J. Stroud. He truly is... I, I don't even know how to describe the young man. He he is courageous. It shouldn't be, have to be called courageous to be spreading the word of Christ. But, but you know, a lot of people are intimidated by those kinds of things, and they don't necessarily go out there and proselytize. But he has said, this is, he said, my career and my platform, it's it's most important to me to spread the word of Christ. He, he is a true believer. He is a true uh, Christian. And, you know, and, and that's a glorious thing. What makes that so upsetting and so offensive to um, to NBC that they would cut that out? I mean, it's uh, it, it's impossible to defend. It's impossible to justify. But that is exactly what they did. They asked him the question and then cut out the first part of his answer. And I wonder, what would have happened if C.J. Stroud had said, I would first and foremost, I'd like to give all praise and glory to Allah, Allah, my Lord and Savior. If he was a Muslim, do you think they'd get away with cutting out his uh, expression of his support for his faith? Not a chance. You know it, and so do I. But Christianity can be edited out. Christianity can be attacked. Christianity can be ignored, and so forth. Yesterday, I read you kind of a what-if scenario. What if we lived in a culture that was the exact opposite of this one? What if conservatives controlled all of the mainstream media and all of the social media and censored liberal talking points? What if 
it was okay to attack other religions, but not Christianity. That's the what-if scenario we laid out yesterday, because this is the real scenario. Any other faith would not have been edited out, but because he's a Christian. CJ, your first playoff game in your first NFL season and a record-setting performance. What does this moment mean? I mean, it's been amazing being in this city. Editing out Christ. If that doesn't spell it out for you, I don't know what does. All right, we're going to get a top-of-the-hour news break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to Will Hild, executive director. So I'm uh, I'm trying to make some sense out of this. Uh, hour number three, by the way, underway. Thanks for being with us. It's uh, seven minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock on this 18th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. I'm, uh, I'm trying to make some sense out of this CVS story that we're about to discuss <clears throat> with Will Hild. Executive Director of uh, Consumers uh, Consumers Research. Um, they have uh, there's a document that has been leaked from 2020. Actually, I'm sure it's much much more detailed now in 2024. But this document was leaked from uh, November 10th of 2020, and it's headlined "What You Need to Know About CVS Health's Social Justice and Equity Commitments." Uh, what is CVS Health Strategic Diversity Management Framework? And then it lists some of the framework, what things that it's built on, including uh, colleague demographics reflective of the demographics of those we serve. So in other words, if you are in a predominantly white area, you would have predominantly white employees, right? No! No, 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 no. We can't do that. But if you're in a predominantly black or minority area, we have to have predominantly black workers and minority workforce representation yes inclusion and belonging workplace defined by personal connections having a seat at the table and demonstrating genuine care for one another well well, okay that's fine unless you're white of course right seat at the table not required genuine care certainly not required to be shown to them Diverse marketplace, exceptional service and stewardship for those we serve and the communities in which we do business. Again, diversity reflected in the workforce, matching that of the community. As part of our SJ&E, which is social justice and equity commitments, we will, among other things, recommit to an aggregate target for supplier diversity and hold leaders with vendor relationships responsible for helping us achieve our target. In other words, if there's a supplier that is looking to supply CVS stores with some of their products and merchandise, they're going to have to reach a certain diversity level themselves before we will even give them an opportunity, before we will do any business with them. That is blatantly unconstitutional. It is a blatant violation of federal law, the Civil Rights Act. You can't do it. We will expand the reach of our workforce initiatives programs into traditionally underserved communities and talent pools. So once again, not based on equal opportunity, but favoritism being given to people who look one way as opposed to another. Somebody explain to me how this is possibly justifiable. Continue to invest in and support public policies designed to address the root causes of systemic inequalities and barriers in underserved communities. To which I again respond, 
why can't you just hire people based on their qualifications, not what they look like? And if you are going to do this based on the, the demographic makeup of the community, does that mean a CVS store in a very, very white community is only going to have a white workforce? Because I think there might be a problem with that. As a matter of fact, I would call that a problem. You shouldn't just hire white people to work in white stores, or white neighborhoods, I should say, and you shouldn't hire predominantly black or or minority people to work in stores in predominantly minority neighborhoods. It is all illegal. It is all discriminatory, and discrimination cannot be allowed. But that's what the largest drugstore chain in the United States of America has done. This is what CVS is doing. All right, joining me now is Will Hild. He is Executive Director of Consumers Research, which is America's oldest consumer protection agency, with reaction to this. Will, thank you for the time. How are you this morning? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. So I've been trying to lay out some of this, as I understand it, from the leaked documents. <clears throat> this is from 2020, by the way. It's uh, November 10, 2020 is the date on this documentation that has been leaked. I don't know who leaked it. Do you? I'm not aware, unfortunately, but whoever it is is a hero. Yeah, well, I agree. I agree. But what I was thinking about is looking at the date on this, um, with four more years of advanced social equity, social justice and DEI initiatives and so forth, I bet it is far worse there now than even what this shows uh, from from 2020. But I'm trying to to work my way through this and try to figure out how they can get away with this from the standpoint of anti-discrimination laws. What can you tell us? Well, the truth is, I, I think that long term, none of these corporations can, and they're probably looking at some very large uh, uh, damages and settlements uh, rulings uh, here for, for labor law, especially after the recent Supreme Court case in the Harvard admissions, which is what a lot the, the higher ed jurisprudence is what a lot of corporations were using as a fig leaf to say that they could get away from this. It's never been tested in court, but now it will never will be because, of course, now the Supreme Court has made it very clear that you are not to be discriminating in higher ed, which means there's no excuse for discriminating in corporate America. You know, it's it's so important to, um, just as an aside, I, I saw a survey. Do I still have that in front of me? Let me check my notes here to see if I still have that exact number. But there was a majority, according to the most recent survey, and I think it was Gallup, uh, a, a pretty strong majority of Americans who believe that affirmative action in the form of uh, higher education, which you were just talking about, or in hiring, uh, is something that they oppose, and included 52%, 52 percent, 52 to 48, of of black respondents to this. So even minorities who are the beneficiaries of a lot of these things, you know, including academic uh, uh, admission to to universities or hiring in the cases of stores like CVS, even minorities realize, you know, this isn't right. Yeah, and we've seen that over and over again. Voters have rejected it at every opportunity they can. In California, uh, there was a ballot initiative that passed to, to make it illegal to discriminate based on race in higher ed. Michigan passed a similar measure as a ballot initiative when when voters are given the choice, and certainly when consumers are given the choice, they push back on this. This is an, a, an elite fetish that they seem to have with, you know, uh, uh, bean counting people based on their race and sex uh, or sexual orientation instead of just treating people based on their merit and their skills, which is what is best for consumers, uh, which is our main focus, which when you, foc- when you focus on, on these race and sex-based quotas, you're not focusing on who can we hire that's the best talent to make sure that the experience when we walk into CVS is the best that it can be, which should be the focus. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and not just in the hiring, but again, also, according to the documentation that was uh, leaked, um, promotion. 
Can you imagine being a, a white male who is working their tail off? They're not hiding in the bathrooms. They're not, uh, you know, taking longer breaks. They're not, you know, they're working very hard because they know that the job of assistant manager pays a lot higher than what they're getting just as a stalker or as a, uh, a, pharma, a pharmacy assistant or whatever job they have at CVS. And they're working and working and working, and then an assistant position, a p- assistant manager position does open up. And you're standing there and you're applying for it and you're saying, great, I'm going to get a promotion here. And then you find out that somebody who is hiding in the bathroom, who doesn't do their job, who works uh, much, much less, who calls off more often, gets the promotion because they're a different shade of, of, of skin color. Uh, and this is the commitment to social justice and equity that CVS has made. What does that, what does that do to, you know, to that, to that, that hard worker other than tell him, don't bother working hard, you can never advance? That, that is 100% correct and a perfect articulation of why these types of things are so damaging to co- consumers. Because even if you don't care about that you know, guy who's trying to make it to assistant manager, if you care about the experience you have when you walk into CVS, you have to see here what they're incentivizing isn't doing your job. It's being of a certain race or sex, right? So why would both, both, the, both, both the minority employee what incentive does he have? He's going to be, he or she is going to be promoted anyway. And what does the non-minority uh, employee, what incentive does he, he or she have if they're not going to be, uh, if, if, if their work product, if the experience that they create for you as a consumer when you walk, as a customer when you walk into CVS, doesn't, you know, have an effect on their employment trajectory or their promotion trajectory, why would either one of them care about how you're treated? And, and we see that. I mean, I, the quality of, of the experience in a CVS has gone down. Uh, especially in the last two, three years. Uh, I think this is obviously we're, we're figuring out why right now with these documents, which is they, they haven't been incentivizing their employees to actually care about how customers are treated. They've been incentivizing them to be of a certain race or sex. Yeah, and that is um, that's that's again, it's 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 blatantly unconstitutional and illegal and a violation of anti-discrimination laws. Uh, one of the other lines on here will uh, put people first, create an engaging and inclusive work environment by constantly celebrating diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And I look at that, and it sounds fine, you know, yeah, you celebrate diversity, but when you celebrate diversity, inclusion, and belonging, you are by definition excluding those who are part of the majority. In other words, if I'm celebrating the multicultural and multicolored and multi-sex and multi-sex sexual orientation and so forth of all of our workers here, you are by definition telling the people who are just plain old ordinary, you know, white males who are straight white males predominantly because sex is a part of this too, that, you know, you don't matter. We're celebrating everybody else's existence and you just have to, in fact, your only job is to clap along. That's 100% correct. The inclusive uh, portion of this is anything but. It really forces people to identify themselves solely as, you know, the structures that CVS articulates. I I assume they're not going to start celebrating every holiday practice anywhere in the world, right? So by definition, they are uh, choosing to highlight some holidays, some religions, some identities, and and, uh, uh, ignore or, or overlook others. And so it's the opposite of inclusion. What they're trying to do is chop people up by these identities that CVS is setting. You know, the average, I don't walk around thinking about my race and sex all the time. Uh, and I would imagine, you know, most of America doesn't think about that all the time. And yet that's how CVS sees their employees. It's simply chopped up by these race and sex based identities. It's the opposite of inclusion. 
Yeah, it is. It really is. And like I said, I can't imagine working there and being told you don't matter. Um, It would be such an uncomfortable work environment to know that you are the oppressor and everybody else here that is traditionally oppressed are the ones we are going to celebrate. Will Hild is my guest. He's Executive Director of Consumers Research, America's oldest consumer protection agency. And one more thought on this, too. It's not just the employees in the store, and it's not just the experience of the consumers in the store other than pricing, uh, but they also have directives, according to what we've learned here, to discriminate against suppliers who are predominantly white, and vendors as well, by prioritizing diversity. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. Are they asking potential suppliers of products for their stores what their own workforce makeup is? And if it's too predominantly white or if it's not diverse enough or inclusive enough, they're going to not allow them to sell their wares in CVS stores? Yeah, we've seen this strategy deployed by a number of different corporations who try to use their power as buyers in the private market. So you have a lot of publicly traded corporations, for example, that then want reports from even, you know, private mom and shop companies who service them around everything from net zero targets to racial and sex based, you know, diversity audits. Um, and so this is a common tactic that now seems to be deployed by uh, big corporate America to basically not just not just in, in uh, internally engage in all this kind of nonsense, but to force it into even smaller companies that are maybe privately held aren't, aren't publicly traded. Well, it's um, it's it's quite an astounding thing. Is there anything that you and the folks at Consumers Research are going to do about this? I mean, have you contacted them to talk about uh, the impact of consumer or on consumers and their experience in the CVS stores, or what do you do for, with, with this information? Well, we have an ongoing uh, initiative we call the Consumers First Initiative, which is our multi-million dollar ad campaigns to call out corporations uh, serve, serving woke activists and woke politicians instead of serving their customers. We've spent tens of millions of dollars calling out companies, you know, from American Airlines to Nike to Ticketmaster to our big uh, uh, adversary, BlackRock. So we're going to continue to to hit any company that engages this kind of nonsense. Uh, people who would like to learn more and get engaged can visit us at Consumers research.org that's consumersresearch.org great information and uh, we really appreciate the work that you guys do to protect consumers from things like this will hill thank you so much for your time today we appreciate that thanks for having me you got it all right there you go executive director of consumers research <clears throat> i keep replaying that scenario in my head and he brought it up from the other perspective as, tr- as well i said once a hard worker of any color is bypassed for a promotion and a raise at a shop or a store like this in favor of somebody who does not work hard and did not earn the promotion or the raise in pay, but got it because of their color, it it disincentivizes both of them from working hard anymore. That affects the store. That affects their productivity. That affects the uh, ability to keep prices low. That affects consumers and everything else. Because if you are, again, in, in, in this, it's... I don't want to make this sound as though the assumption is that the minority worker won't work hard. This is just the example because of what the nature of this inclusivity and social justice and equity, these these agendas are, that that white workers who work harder and do better at their jobs than a minority worker, if the minority worker is promoted anyway because of CVS's stated goal of advancing diversity and promoting because of diversity, because of skin color or sexual orientation or what have you, the white worker is going to be done working hard. Why work hard? I can't get promoted anyway. I'm going to loaf and laze my way through my eight-hour shift as well. 
But as, as uh, Will just pointed out, the minority worker now has the same attitude. Why should I bother working hard? They're going to promote me anyway. They have to. I'm the right color. I'm the right orientation. I have the right number of piercings and blue hair or whatever other, whatever other diversity things that they're pushing forward with. Everybody pays. <clears throat> it does nothing for a workplace environment. It does nothing for consumers. It does nothing for the productivity of the shop. All it does is virtue signal that we're inclusive. I mean, the first thing that, who did I talk to this morning? Oh, uh, uh, Max Miller. Congressman Max Miller, I brought him in. Uh, on the uh, heels of some commentary in the first half hour of the show. You'll have to go back and listen to the podcast. But I was doing some commentary on, on a couple of things at the top of the show, as I always do in my monologue. And then we had Will, I mean, uh, we had uh, Max Miller on early at 9.15. And he heard me, and, and I was talking about this story and a couple of others involving DEI. And uh, he just jumped in and said, DEI must be destroyed. And I couldn't say it any better. DEI must be destroyed. And the left knows it. And that's why they are going crazy whenever steps are taken in that direction. When Claudine Gay was fired as the or forced to resign as the president at Harvard, it was for two reasons specifically. One, her embarrassing display of anti-Semitism in front of the Congressional Committee in which she was asked whether or not it was a violation of Harvard's student code of conduct policy to uh, threaten genocide against a group of people. She refused to say, yes, that's against our policy. She said, well, there depends on the context. Then, because of that embarrassment, um, her fraudulent academic resume was exposed, and she cheated. And she lifted passages, sometimes pages at a time, from people like Dr. Carol Swain and didn't give attribution, so her plagiarism was exposed, and she was fired. But what did the left do? The left immediately said this had nothing to do with anti-Semitism, and it had nothing to do with plagiarism. She was hired as the first black Harvard president and was the driver of the DEI initiative there. That's what her primary focus is and was. So they said this is an attack on DEI, and that's when they came out swinging, defending Claudine Gay, defending her plagiarism, defending the anti-Semitism, defending all of it, because what they're worried about is that DEI is going to take a hit from this. And indeed it should. If she was hired, she wasn't just hired because she supports DEI. She was hired because she represents DEI. In other words, she was hired by DEI. She wasn't the most qualified person for the job. But she's the right color, and she represents the diversity and the inclusivity that matters more to them. And she also happened to bring that that as, as a part of her platform or part of her mission, her agenda uh, at the university. So DEI is under attack. Max Miller came out here as a congressman and said, absolutely, it must be destroyed. It needs to be destroyed at Harvard. It needs to be destroyed in corporate America. It needs to be destroyed at drugstores like, like CVS. It needs to be destroyed everywhere that it exists because it is inherently the opposite of what it says. When you promote diversity, inclusion, uh, uh, and, uh, and equity, which I put it in that order, again, D-I-E, because it does lead to the death of all things good. But when you promote diversity, you are by very the very definition 
of diversity, celebrating diversity, you are um, discriminating against people who are in the majority. When you promote inclusivity, you are by definition excluding a certain class of people who are part of the majority. And when you promote equity, you are absolutely discriminating against those who would advance themselves on their own and who all they want is an equality of opportunity, not an equity of outcome. It's the exact opposite of the way things should be run and have been run. This country has survived and grown and thrived and become the greatest force for good in the history of human civilization over the last 250 years, not because of DEI, but because of capitalism and and work ethic and opportunity being pursued and those who work the hardest being rewarded for it. That's how we've grown into what we've become, not by telling people, don't worry, be lazy. We're going to promote you and pay you more anyway because of how you look. It's insanity. 